Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Welcome to Vacation Bible School for the whole family. You're the adults, I trust, and uh, good to have you in my class here. Uh, we are going to be going through the, the Right Kind of Faith, my book on the Right Kind of Faith. I call this uh, my most important project. Uh, I put 38 years into the study of it. So uh, we're not going to hit everything. We're going to hit the highlights, obviously, only the highlights. But uh, this is really kind of a resource manual. Uh, you know, hopefully you can refer back to it uh, many times as you go through life here in various studies as far as kind of the summary point on lots of different topics. Uh, you know, one of the key reasons I ended up writing this was because of the lordship controversy. So that's a key issue that I'm addressing here. But we'll also talk about Calvinism and Arminianism. And uh, we'll talk about uh, baptismal regeneration. And we'll talk about uh, charismania and, and so forth. So there's a lot of topics that tie in here. But uh, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into our, our study here this evening. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble and uh, consider the right kind of faith, uh, that topic, uh, during the course of the week here. Pray it would be a profitable study for each one of us as I've kind of distilled uh, my study of, of the scriptures through the years. And uh, and all kinds of other things as well. So, Lord, um, just guide and direct in our study. Pray for all the other classes that are ongoing, each one of the teachers, the helpers. Uh, thank you for all the, the kitchen help. Everybody's got a part here. We thank you for them. Pray that you would bless uh, our labors this week now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if, uh, if you don't have a book, you need a book, because uh, we're going to be going through, uh, you know, that's what I'll be largely going through here. And so... Uh, uh, grab a book at the back. Thank you, Vince, for helping me with that. And uh, we got some extras up here if we need it. Uh, note uh, the table of contents there. I've got 14 major subjects there and all kinds of things uh, addressed under those. But then go to the next page, the preamble. Uh, let me just read that. Through the years, there has been a debate in evangelical circles about the nature of saving faith. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about the right kind of faith. Uh, we all agree it's by faith. Note I say all true Christians agree that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we all agree on justification by faith alone. I, I'm, I'm talking about true Christians now. We agree on that, that. There's no debate there. The great issue is over what constitutes the nature of saving faith. Uh, the debate revolves around what is involved in a saving faith response to Christ. More specifically, the issue is over the lordship of Christ. Must one accept Christ as personal Lord as well as Savior? Or is it sufficient to merely accept Christ as Savior? There's the heart of the issue when it comes to the Lordship debate. Uh, this is the great debate. My view is that in saving faith, a person believes on Christ as their personal Lord as well as personal Savior. I have dubbed the view that says one uh, need not accept Christ as Lord in order to be saved as the Lordless gospel. At best, such a gospel is incomplete, and an incomplete gospel, if presented as the full gospel, in reality is a false gospel. The great issue in salvation is the right kind of faith. Uh, I'll show a couple of slides at the beginning of each uh, one of these sessions. Uh, first one here is uh, from uh, John MacArthur, who is key in this debate in modern times here. We cannot know Christ any other way than as Lord. Um, I think that's true. Uh, I will. That's my point here, <laughs> defending that, that key issue. Uh, here's another one from Tozer. I really love Tozer. Christ will be Lord or he will be judge. Every man must decide whether he will take him as Lord now or face him as judge then. Uh, A.W. Tozer. 
Uh, let's go down here. I want to share just a little bit of my heart as far as my testimony. Uh, you know, I, um, from the very beginning, had a lordship concept of Jesus Christ in my conversion experience. Uh, I wrote this on Christmas Day in 1979. I feel the Lord wants me to write a few lines. Don't know why. To his glory, amen. It's been the greatest year of my life. I found Jesus. A little bit of uh, emphasis on me there, right? I found Jesus instead of him finding me. I'd probably say now he found me, you know, in my uh, maturity. But uh, that's what I said at that point. How great it is to be loved. As I look at the world, it's mass confusion. Why? Because man is still listening to man, fools. We can create problems but can't solve them. There can be nothing greater in life than to be in the presence of Almighty God. I know that Jesus is coming soon and that soon I'll be in his presence And oh, how I anticipate that day. Without him, there is no life. He is life. Amen. Uh, May my life be to the honor and glory of Jesus, who loves me and who is my master. And all the forces in hell can't separate us. Amen. If you're ready for death, you're ready for anything. If you're not ready for death, you're not ready. Thank you, Jesus. And I sign my name. Well, as I wrote this uh, first paper of what we're talking about in the subject matter in 1990, Uh, I said, I wrote the above ten and a half years ago. It's hard to believe how fast time has gone. Life is like that. Eternity is not. Today, as in those early days of knowing Christ, I reaffirm the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I praise Him and thank Him for His wonderful, wonderful grace that that bought me and sought me, ever teaches and keeps me, and will lead me safely home. I rejoice in the precious blood of Christ that cleansed me from all unrighteousness when I place saving faith in the person and work of the exalted living Lord of the universe. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm a sinner saved by grace. All I am is a trophy of his marvelous grace. And then this year, uh, just, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, on uh, April 21st, I wrote, Today, after 38 years of full-time ministry, my heart is full. The hallmark of my ministry has been verse-by-verse study through the books of the Bible. I've had the privilege to expositionally teach through the entire Bible and some books more than once. The result of this inductive study of the whole counsel of God has deepened me in my conviction that the glory for our salvation belongs only to God, that there is a mysterious tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that it must be the right kind of faith. One of the great issues throughout the church age has been the debate over the nature of a true saving faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, so the issue of faith is the critical issue in life. In my mind, of all the specialized studies I've committed myself to through the years, this one was most important. As a young man, I gave two full years to this study in a concentrated manner as I studied the entire Bible as hard as I could concerning what it teaches regarding the nature of saving faith. The result of that study was the first edition of this paper, I then built on that study for over 30 years, and this revised work is the result of that prolonged day-in and day-out study. I consider it to be the greatest study of my life. I sincerely hope that it presents me approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The great exam is yet to come, and it makes me tremble. All right, well, on the next page, page four, and uh, we're just going to look at the high points like I say here. There's no way we can cover everything here uh, in the amount of time that's allotted. I'm going to try to go slow because some years I've been kind of like an auctioneer and it's like this is too much. But uh, uh, it's probably still too much, but I am going to try to slow down and just hit the high points here. Uh, Note uh, the background of the subject on page four and then an open invitation to receive Christ. And then let's go down to the uh, background doctrinal clarifications. I want to just state in uh, brief a few things there. 
Bottom of page four, uh, salvation is by grace. You know, the, the gospel that we preach is above all a gospel of grace. Uh, so, boy, we just want to hammer that. Uh, that's a hill to die on, the gospel of grace. Number two, work, self-effort, or any merit system, in contrast to grace, have nothing to do with receiving eternal life. And then number three, a vital element in saving faith is repentance. Repentance is not additional to faith, but is in fact inherent in the act of genuine saving faith. So I believe we're saved by faith alone, but again, the nature of a true saving faith involves repentance. And then uh, number four, salvation is by faith in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, in all ages, the issue is faith. And uh, the great argument for that would be Hebrews chapter 11. As the Hall of Faith goes back to you know, many of those great giants of the Old Testament and establishes the issue of faith. Number five, salvation does not exclude immaturity, carnality, or a constant struggle with sin. I mean, there's a battle until we get to, until we get to glory. And number six, there is such a thing as a spurious, and by spurious I mean false uh, faith that is not real or genuine. Uh, many will say, Lord, Lord. I think they actually thought they were believers, but uh, uh, they will be shown to be false. Number seven, now saving faith involves the will, includes repentance, as in the person as well as the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, we'll, we'll be looking at that in, at some, in some detail. And then number eight, election and predestination are divinely revealed truths, as is also the reality of human responsibility, which presents a great paradox that is beyond comprehension. The Bible holds all these truths in tension, and by faith, so must we. And I have a special uh, word that I use for describing holding to both of these tensions in a consistent way throughout the Scriptures, and that word is Biblicist. I, I like to call myself a Biblicist because I want to insist on holding both of these in tension, and I can't completely figure it out. Now, I know there are those um, good men, both sides, who've got it all figured out. Only one problem, they don't. Uh, they say they do sometimes, but uh, no. Uh, and I'm pretty sure both sides will all say they're biblicists. But I really define a biblicist as one who's holding uh, to the whole council and the tensions that are there. Uh, number nine, uh, while recognizing that even faith itself is the work, uh, is the result of a work of God's grace in our hearts, uh, this study's emphasis primarily involves the nature of saving faith from the angle of human responsibility. In the final analysis, it's all of grace, and yet there is human accountability, responsibility in the mix, hence the paradox. So, uh, you know, we'll talk a lot about that as we go along. I can't get off onto these rabbit trails, otherwise we're not going to get too far. Uh, number 10, all legitimate believers, uh, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, hold to salvation by grace uh, through faith and not of works. However, it's also to be recognized that saving faith is expected to produce spiritual fruit to some degree, in the life of every born-again believer. Uh, certainly that's true in the heart. I think even the thief on the cross had fruit. You know, he's still bearing fruit. I mean, there was a change of attitude as he responded to Christ in a whole different way than he did earlier when he's uh, mocking Christ. And uh, so that, that was fruit. I mean, there's a change of dynamics in the heart, uh, certainly. And then that uh, shows in the life. Uh, let's go to judgment principles. Number one, it is important not to prematurely or automatically put someone in a theological box or a particular category or camp with all the presuppositions one may have in reference to that particular school of thought before fully hearing them out. Uh, so, you know, it's been an argument. 
It's kind of like, I'm not even listening to what the other side is saying because I've got my side I want to present. And so, you know, a lot of times we kind of really need to to listen. And in the debate, I often saw this. Uh, Number two, even among those in general agreement, there is often much disagreement over many fine nuances involved in the discussion regarding lordship salvation versus a lordless gospel. So uh, sometimes are we talking, uh, are we talking nuances? Uh, what, what are we talking about here? Is there uh, substantive differences here? There may be. Maybe not when we really shake it out. All depends. For example, note number three, the definition of terms is key. For example, Charles Ryrie, in seeking to refute the lordship position of John MacArthur, wrote a book called So Great Salvation. However, in the book he said... Quote, and because he is Lord God, there is an element in bowing before him, Jesus, and acknowledging him as a most superior person when one trusts him for salvation. Well, when I read that, uh, when I read that, I said, what are we really arguing about? In my view, Ryrie just acknowledged that in saving faith, one recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, okay, you write this whole book to refute MacArthur, and yet you say, yeah, we do bow before him as the sovereign one. Yeah, I think that's what MacArthur is saying. Uh, So what are we really arguing about? That's what I'm talking about. Some views that are labeled lordship salvation are heresy. I will admit that. Uh, True enough. Uh, You want to front load the gospel where you make all these, you know, clean up your life requirements before you can accept them. That's heresy. Because uh, they are defined in terms of a work salvation. But a biblical view makes it purely a matter of saving faith, and the issue is the nature of a true saving faith. So labels are relative depending on the definition being used. We must be careful of labels and libels. And then number four, some of the phraseology and terminology commonly used is confusing, ambiguous. In critiquing an individual's particular views, some have the weakness of taking a writer's words out of context or taking an ambiguous phrase and negatively applying it to the writer without considering the sense and context intended. Both clear terminology and unfair critiquing often result in much confusion. Okay, just a couple points at the top of page uh, six there. The right focus. It's important that we not be followers of men. Uh, You know, I line up with this person. I line up with that person. You know, the truth of the matter is, if I study anybody very long, and if you study me very long, we will disagree on something. If if we have two thinking people here. Uh, so it's important that we not be followers of men as we find those at Corinth were doing. You know, I follow Apollos, I'm with Paul, you know, I'm with Cephas, whatever. Uh, rather, we are to be following uh, Christ, uh, recognizing men as mere servants. Someone has said everyone is entitled to their own stupid opinion. Uh, therefore, we should not put stock in mere opinions of people, but rather search the scriptures for what saith the Lord. Uh, it's not what other books may say about the Bible, although they may be helpful and insightful but what the Bible says that is authoritative and really counts. Okay, let's jump down to the key issue. Uh, What's the key issue in all the Bible? Uh, You know, don't cheat, don't look. (laughs) What's the key issue in all the Bible, would you say? Just in your head, mentally. Uh, You might come up with a number of ideas that you say, here's, I think, the main theme throughout the whole Scriptures. And again, godly men disagree here. But uh, note some of the possibilities. The kingdom. Kingdom is certainly a major theme from Genesis to Revelation. Um, my good friend Michael Vlock says this is the main uh, theme in all of the Word of God. Certainly a main one. Uh, salvation. Uh, you know, you have uh, your covenant theologians who say, you know, one people of God, uh, you know, this one uh, covenantal system, uh, and they make salvation the major issue all the way through the Scriptures. It certainly is a major issue. 
Uh, how about the glory of God? Dispensationalists have said this is the major theme throughout the scriptures. The glory of God. Certainly a major theme. No question about that. Everything uh, is to be to the glory of God. How about the lordship of God? Uh, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really huge theme. It is a, a major one in all the scriptures. But number five, the Messiah who is the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, a case can be made for all of the above, but I would argue that they all intersect with and are subservient to the greatest theme of all, which is centralized in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he is the central subject in all of the Word of God. And everything ultimately ties with Jesus in one form or another. He's, he's the great theme. And I think he showed this to the disciples on the Emmaus Road uh, after the resurrection. Well, let's talk about, uh, jump down there to the next uh, in bold there, the issue, the nature of saving faith. Two uh, crucial questions. Uh, what are we asked to believe? How are we asked to believe? We're going to be considering that. Uh, go to the next page. And uh, note at the middle of the page two definitions, intellectual assent versus saving faith. I mean, it's not enough to know the facts and supposedly agree with the facts. Um, we have intellectual assent emphasizing intellectual recognition of gospel truth, or at least professing to, apart from personal appropriation. I think James is addressing this. Uh, faith without works is dead. Okay, you believe. Even the demons believe intellectually. Uh, they have knowledge. They know the facts probably better than any one of us do. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's a mental thing. It's not uh, uh, from the heart. Uh, saving faith emphasizing personal recognition and appropriation of gospel truth. So I developed those two main views there. And then uh, go to the note there towards the bottom of the page. Recognition of Christ as Lord in salvation does not signify completion or maturity but a personal belief in the truth of it, which alters the course of one's life. Maturity involves growth in relation to the truth recognized in salvation. So, uh, you know, you accept Christ as your Lord. Lord means master. Uh, you can be, uh, you know, ignorant of the master. You can be disobedient to the master. There's growth. There's immaturity. There's carnality that can enter into the equation for sure. Let's go to the next page. Page 9, scriptural evidence for a lordship definition of faith. John uh, chapter 20, and I consider John to be my, if you were to say, what's your major argument here? It's John. It's John. Uh, John is the gospel belief. The main theme of the gospel of John is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, it builds to the climax. I think this is the climax of the entire book of John, which the whole purpose was written so we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And uh, in John 20, 28, Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And Jesus responded by saying, He had believed. This is what it means to believe. And uh, it means, uh, this is what it means to believe, to recognize Jesus as my Lord and my God. I, uh, when I was uh, doing that first paper, the, you know, I was in this debate, and <laughs> some, uh, some of my pastor friends, uh, this particular pastor friend, didn't agree and uh, we were having this discussion. It was in a public place. And he says, well, what do you got to prove it? And I says, well, how about uh, John 20, uh, where Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you've believed. And he said to me, that's it? That's all you got? Said, Come on, man. This is what Jesus says. This is how Jesus defines belief. My Lord and my God. I mean, you're taking on Jesus, not me. 
this is all I got? This is Jesus. I mean, what, what more do you want? I mean, this is powerful. Note the word my. It must be personal. The point of the book of John is to bring us to the point that we might believe in Jesus for who he is. The Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, you say, well, we're a savior in there. Well, it's in there. Uh, <laughs> it's in Christ. Christ died for our sins. It's who he is and what he's done. Uh, but it must be personal. Uh, that's the point of the whole gospel of John. Okay, let's go to the next page. Page uh, 10, uh, illustrating the issue. I want to emphasize both the work of Christ, the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. Boy, I'm going to die on that hill. You know, before I had the lordship fight in my life, I really had a long-term battle with the baptismal regenerationists. Every, every week I would write an article in the paper and there was another guy from the Church of Christ and he picked up the battle on his side and he'd write an opposing article. In fact, I went down to the newspaper people and said, this is really interesting. We've got a good following because you guys are going back and forth over this whole issue. Uh, I really believe the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is non-negotiable. I'm not compromising that for one second. But I also believe in the person of Jesus Christ. That is also essential when we're talking about the right kind of faith. And so, you know, I illustrate the issue here, history, theology, salvation. I put it all together in terms of both the, the work of Christ and the person of Christ. And, uh, you know, history, a man called Jesus uh, who claimed to be God died. That's history. Can't deny that. This is history. A man called Jesus who claimed to be God died. That's a fact of history. Theology, a man called Jesus is God who died for sin. That's theology. Salvation personalizes it. A man called Jesus is my God who died for my sin. That's my Savior. It's personal. So note, a true saving faith combines both the personhood and the work of Christ on the cross into one view. Both truths are a part of the salvation message and must be personally applied and appropriated in a personal sense in order for saving faith to take place. So Lord and Savior is an indissoluble package. Even the very name Jesus, which emphasizes him being Savior, literally means God Savior. So let's define faith. Uh, let's jump down to that number five there. When do we start to believe God? That's a good question. When do you start to believe God? How about Genesis 1-1? How about starting to believe God at the very beginning? Uh, this is where the Bible begins, after all, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you, have you read the, the, uh, the preface to the Bible with all these arguments why you should start to believe in Genesis? No, you haven't. It starts at Genesis 1, 1, with God. The Bible begins with God and His creation work, the Hall of Faith chapter. You know, we talk about Hebrews 11. I mean, it's the great theme of faith, the Hall of Faith chapter. Uh, in essence, begins with faith, recognizing God as creator. Uh, we read there, Hebrews eleven three. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. How do you know this? By science. Uh, well, science, you know, true science will confirm it, yeah. But we know it uh, by faith. We understand that the worlds were framed uh, by the word of God. Uh, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Okay, I go into some detail on that, but let's go to the next uh, page, uh, page 12. And uh, jump all the way down to clarifications. I hate to jump over all of this, really. We're leaving out years. We're talking 38 years boiled into one week here. So we have to skip large sections here. But I hope you'll go back and read it. 
You know, uh, the guy who uh, printed this up for us, I gave him a copy as a gift. You know, I said, I'm going to give this to you on one condition. You promised me you're going to read it. He said he would. I'm going to check back. Anyway, I hope you can read it. Clarifications. uh, In the Bible, the words faith, believe, and trust are all essentially used interchangeably to present the same basic concept. And then I describe this as we go on there. But uh, just keep in mind, whether we're talking faith or believing or trusting, really pretty much interchangeable. And then go to page 13, the middle of the page there. Uh, Faith has an object. Uh, Biblically speaking, faith is never in a vacuum. So, you know, people say, well, you write your own ticket with God. I'm going to believe God for a new car. Okay, (laughs) God hasn't promised you a new car. Uh, He hasn't even promised you a car. I'm not even sure he's promised you a donkey, right? (laughs) But anyway, uh, saving faith, number two, saving faith is related to the Word of God and the God of the Word. So faith, biblically, always connects to the Word of God. God says something, and I believe what God says. There's always a connection. Faith is not some, I I just believe this nebulous thing out here. No, it's connected to the promise of God. It's connected to the Word of God. And that's certainly true in saving faith. Number three, faith is only as good as its object. Faith is either in God or in something else. Genuine saving faith can't be in both. Many people believe in themselves through a merit system, good works, or self-effort. Uh, True faith is trusting in Jesus, Him alone for your salvation. Number four, uh, saving faith has as its object the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then number five, salvation is of the Lord, and faith is simply the means of reception. Uh, Then I give some definitions of uh, faith, believe, trust. Uh, We're going to go on to the next page, uh, page 14, what the Old Testament calls trust, uh, believe, and faith. I give some examples and then what the New Testament calls uh, belief and faith. And then, uh, where is the line of saving faith? That's a good question, right? If there is such a thing as a false or a spurious faith, and there's such a thing as a true saving faith, where is the line between those two? That's a, that's a good question here. Uh, note uh, to up of page 15, under ultimately only God knows the line. You know, none of us are God. God alone is the final judge. He makes the final call on every person's life. Now, we are fruit inspectors. Christ said you know them by their fruits. But we leave off final judgment to God. I mean, you know, we kind of, we all make discernment calls. And am I working with a believer here or an unbeliever? I mean, even in church discipline, we, we make judgment calls here. We're talking about a believer. We don't discipline unbelievers. You know, all, all, we make discernment calls. So uh, notice what I say there. Determining someone's questionable spiritual status with absolute certainty is impossible. The wheat and the tares grow together. And you know the thing about those tares is they look a lot like wheat. And so sometimes, you know, am I talking a wheat or a tare? In the end, God himself will sort it out. Uh, In the end, only God can ultimately separate them. When people profess one thing and seemingly walk another Only God can absolutely know which side of the line they are on. Uh, Concerning fringe people, only God knows where that line is and who is where in relation to it. Judgment Day will reveal all. So uh, then I talk about are you in the faith, different questions I ask there. Uh, There is such a thing as a counterfeit faith, and I have various clarifications under that. Let's go to the next page, uh, page 16. And you do understand we're getting to page 30 in this, in this session, right? Okay. 
But I, you would admit, too, I'm going a lot slower than other years, right? Oh, I am? Okay, I wasn't sure. All right, I'll take that as I'll go with that. Uh, page 16, the middle of the page here, note, uh, salvation indicates direction, but not perfection in the life of a believer in the here and now. So uh, we're all in process. None of us are going to be perfect until we get to glory in terms of our walk, but we are in process. We are in process. Uh, <clears throat> so note, the second note there, there are professors, uh, uh, professors which are counterfeiters, and there are true possessors. There is that reality in the Scripture. Uh, scriptural examples of a counterfeit faith. Boy, I wish we had some time to spend here, but we really don't. Uh, but do look across the page to number seven. Judas is the classic counterfeiter, and he was good at it, right? Had everybody fooled except for the Lord himself. Uh, nobody ever fools the Lord. But boy, he was, he was good at, at faking it. Okay, let's go to uh, page 19, top of page 19. Four basic categories of counterfeit faith. I think every, you could um, put all this, the spurious examples under one of these. Pretend faith, it's hypocritical. Hourly professing, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, uh, Titus 1.16. There is vain faith. It accepts certain intellectual and historical facts, but does not endure. Uh, Paul says, by the gospel by which you are saved, uh, uh, if, if you continue. And uh, demon-like faith, this is what James deals with. The will is involved while the intellect uh, and the, uh, the will is uninvolved while the intellect and the emotions are. Uh, you know, the demons believe intellectually and they tremble emotionally. So there's an intellectual experience, there's an emotional experience. But, but their heart is not with Jesus. They don't follow Jesus. There's something missing. Uh, temporary faith initially accepts the truth but then does not continue. Uh, we have the repeated refrain in the New Testament. Three major passages. Uh, uh, do not be deceived. Do not be de- There is such a thing as being deceived. I can't imagine anything worse than thinking you're a Christian and showing up before the Lord on Judgment Day and, and you're condemned. I've had nightmares about that. You know, like, oh my goodness, what if I'm one of the deceived ones? The Bible's very clear. Do not be deceived. Let's go to the next page. Uh, number, uh, page 20. Grace truly received breaks the pattern of sin. Uh, Again, worth reading, but let's jump to page 21. Uh, Under the second paragraph, if our professed relationship with Christ hasn't changed our relationship with sin, then we are deceived. And uh, the scariest verses in the Bible are said to be Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you practice lawlessness. So these verses have been dubbed the scariest verses in the Bible. What could be more terrifying reality than to think you are going to heaven only to find yourself thrust from the presence of the Lord for all eternity? Sadly, Jesus says, this will be the experience of many. These people thought they were serving the Lord. They claimed to be serving the Lord, and yet they didn't really know the Lord. They were living a double life, clearly. Okay, page 22. Uh, False teachers reject Christ's lordship. Uh, This is a main issue as, as dealing with false teachers. If you were to do a study of false teachers, this is a consistent issue. And uh, page 23, the middle of the page there, the way of the false teacher, uh, 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
This is a, a mark of the last days of the church age, which is where we live, by the way. Let's go to page uh, 24, uh, the doctrine of apostasy. The Bible has a lot to say about apostasy, and yet there's not a huge amount of teachers that are really uh, emphasizing apostasy in our days. And it should really be, that was the time where it really needs to be uh, talked about. Uh, apostasy is an interesting situation. Because, you see, the idea of apostasy is to depart from the faith. And this is by people who once professed the faith. Apostates are people who were professors. They claim to be there. And then they walk away. Well, apostates uh, were never really true believers uh, because if they uh, were of us, they would have continued with us, as John talks about. But they went out from us that, that it might be known. Uh, next page, page 25, apostasy under the radar. Uh, lots of things I bring out there in terms of Jude. Let's go to the next page, page 26, uh, apostates and accountability. Uh, right under there, full-blown apostates are hardened unbelievers who have known great spiritual privilege. It is because of great spiritual privilege that they are so very accountable. I think apostates are most accountable because they have known the truth. Uh, it's been shared with them. They have professed it. They've had a lot of light. And the more light you're given, the more you're accountable for. And when you harden yourself to great light, there's no, there's no turning back. I don't know where that line is. We've already talked about that. But there is, there is a line that Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 talks about. Serious, serious matter, this issue of apostates. Uh, dealing with apostates, uh, jump down. This is page 27, dealing with uh, apostates. Uh, jump down to the last paragraph before the scripture reference here. We reach out to unbelievers evangelistically with the love of Jesus. We want them to come to repentance where they believe in Jesus as we do. But if they come into the context of the church with an agenda to seek to lead people astray, then we must earnestly contend for the faith. We must expose them and strongly stand against such error. Which, by the way, takes some courage and, and spiritual fortitude. <laughs> it's, it's, we all want to get along, right? I like to get along. You know, I don't wake up in the morning and say, I wonder who I can pick a fight with today. You know, maybe we can get something going. No, I want to get along with people. But uh, as spiritual leaders in particular, and really all of God's people, we are to be uh, earnestly contending. Tolerance is the byword of our day, but it is the antithesis of earnestly contending for the faith in the context of the church family. No responsible shepherd lets a wolf have free play in the fold of the sheep. Outside, the wolf can roam freely. Okay, he's roaming out there. Even so, mark those who cause divisions, you know, as Paul says. But however, in the fold, there is to be no tolerance for the wolf. That's for sure. Okay, let's go to page 28. Apostasy, a sign of the times. Uh, you know, people talk about uh, what are the signs of the times. You know, I see most of the signs related to the last days, related to Israel, related to the tribulation period. As I've taught in Matthew 24 and, and 25. But there is this, what we might call the trend of the, of the church age. And the trend of the church age is that the gospel has gone out far and wide, and then there's tremendous apostasy in the last days. That's the emphasis of 2 Timothy uh, 3 and 4. Uh, already read there, uh, verse 13, 2 Timothy 3, 13. Uh, 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. 
this is kind of the defining trait of the last days of the church age, uh, increasing apostasy, which prepares the way for the Antichrist. Uh, page 29, lordless apostates. And notice uh, Jude 4 says, certain men have crept in unnoticed. I like to call these people creeps because they've crept in, right? Uh, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of, of our God into lewdness, deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of lordship emphasis here. But notice, they, notice in spite of how he describes them, they've crept in unnoticed. Unnoticed? <laughs> what? Uh, they're ungodly. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. They deny the only Lord God. They're, they're lordship deniers all the way. And yet, they've crept in unnoticed. Goodness sakes, how does this happen? Notice, they're ungodly. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness. They deny the only master and Lord of us, Jesus Christ. They do not hold to the lordship of Christ. Application, immorality is a real lordship issue. Apostates move in the circles of God's people, but they reject Jesus as Lord and Savior as evidenced in their lewd conduct. Truly receiving the grace of God involves receiving Christ for who he is as Lord and Savior. Grace is a life-changing reality. For Jude, grace was not in conflict with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I want to underscore that point. Okay, uh, final warnings uh, to the churches, top of page 30. Um, Let's see here, where we want to go here. Uh, second paragraph there. When we examine Christ's message for the seven churches in the book of Revelation, repentance is a dominant theme. In fact, five out of the seven churches are called upon to repent. I wonder, as Christ is addressing all the local churches, is he going to call Southview? If he writes a letter to us, would he say, you need to repent? Well, it's, a, it's kind of a sobering question. I, I hope not. But, uh, you know, I've got them listed there, what he calls them to repentance for. Uh, let's go to the po uh, top of page 31. Uh, Vance Habner says, Our Lord's last word to the church was not the Great Commission, but a plea for repentance. Boy, that's sobering truth. The last word to the church was not the Great Commission. We said, well, the last thing you said was the Great Commission. Matthew 28. No, no, no. Read on in to the book of Revelation. The last word to the church was repent a plea for repentance. Okay, well, we are going to have a little break here, and we got where we needed to be, and uh, they are gracious enough to serve us our treats here in the coffee room, okay? Or you'll get just the room off of the coffee room. You'll go through and go around and then go into the coffee room and have uh, your snacks in there. But uh, let me have a word of prayer here. Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this study. I pray it's helpful as we consider some of the basics related to the faith, which is the ultimate issue. In the, at the end of the day, there's believers and there's unbelievers. And it's so important that we get uh, the faith right, the ultimate issue. So, Lord, bless our study as we continue. And thanks for some fellowship now and the refreshments for the hands that have pre uh, prepared it. Uh, bless it and uh, bless our fellowship. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'll see you back at 730. Lord willing. I hope the next session comes out as, as clearly as that one did.
That might be a while. Oh, I guess I had it off. There we go. Oh, another quote from uh, Tozer. Is this my uh, last one? Okay. The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. So, again, making the point that it's not enough just to have knowledge. The devil has a lot of knowledge. And then uh, one more slide here. This is from Spurgeon, who a lot of quotable Spurgeon. Now, sirs, any kind of faith in Christ which does not change your life is the faith of devils and will take you where devils are, but will never take you to heaven. So a very strong quote from Spurgeon there. Okay, we are picking it up on page 31, and uh, we are picking it up at what to believe in the middle of the page. The key key emphasis here, what to believe. And uh, note just a few clarifications there under that uh, that topic. Uh, Number one, the content of one's faith, what you believe, uh, makes all the difference in terms of whether one goes to heaven or hell. You have to believe the right thing, right? I mean, you've got all kinds of cults who believe in Christ, but it's another Christ. It's another Jesus. It's not the right one. And so the content of your faith is very important. Number two, concerning the nature of saving faith, its essence is the same. I could put the nature there. Its essence is the same in both the Old Testament and the New. However, God's revelation of himself and his plan were progressive. Therefore, saving faith in terms of specific content corresponds to the revelation given. You know, after the resurrection of Christ, God now commands all men everywhere to repent and specifically to put their faith in Jesus Christ as revealed in the resurrection. Um, That's a different emphasis than what we have before the resurrection of Christ. But after the resurrection, there's a specific command now given because he has ordained a a day in which he will judge the world. Uh, Number three. The Old Testament is foundational for much of what we can learn about faith in the New Testament. Uh, There is much that is foundational in the Gospels that the rest of the New Testament builds on. So the Bible does build. And uh, if you want to understand the nature of saving faith, the place to start is probably in the Old Testament. And I'll get to this. Uh, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament scripture that the New Testament then builds on. And so Revelation is progressive. Uh, It's like building blocks that are being developed as we work our way through the Scriptures. And I'm kind of saying that in reference to those who say, well, the faith that we hold today, it's it's a New Testament faith. It has nothing to do with, we can unhitch from the Old Testament, to to quote a certain teacher. Uh, No, 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 you better not do that. Uh, We'll talk about that more. Number four, the object of faith in both Testaments is not seen to be in the gift of salvation, but rather in the giver himself. It's a key point. Uh, Our faith is in the giver. Yes, uh, we do believe in him for the gift, uh, I mean, for what he does for us. But really, uh, the emphasis is the giver. The Bible stresses faith in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, recognizing him for who he is goes hand in hand with what he does. His person and his saving work go together. Lord and Savior are a package. You can't hold to one without the other. And then number five, uh, saving faith involves people seeing their sin, their need of salvation, and the God of biblical revelation as the only means of their salvation. 
So uh, we're not going to cover this, but uh, what to believe illustrated in the Old Testament. Let's go on to the next page. And then the next page, page 34. We're skipping a lot of stuff. It's all good. Uh, at the top of page 34, my note. Basic to Old Testament saving faith was personally recognizing the God of biblical revelation, the God of Israel, uh, to be the one true sovereign God over all who is able to save. And then jump down, uh, what to believe is illustrated in the New Testament, a tremendous emphasis on Christ's sovereign lordship. Uh, it's uh, central in the Gospels. Um, page 35, right under the note there, Christ's lordship was central to the message preached by the early church in Acts. Uh, in the first message given in the church age, Peter, quoting from Joel 2.32, uh, in the Old Testament, referencing the Lord Jesus Christ, told his audience, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so uh, right from the very beginning in the church age, we see that emphasis. Uh, jump down to the next bold. The, the Lordship of Christ is central in the epistles. And I illustrate that. And then uh, number two, Jesus is Savior. So we're emphasizing both, uh, uh, Lord and Savior, as the New Testament does. And then I point out some passages with a, a dual emphasis on Christ's person and his work. And then come across uh, page 37, the middle of the page there in my bold, uh, in uh, all caps there. Saving faith is personally embracing the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is, Lord God, for what he has done, died for our sins. That is his Lord and Savior. This is what we must believe. Let's talk about the knowledge of the truth. I've got like uh, 12 points here. Uh, but uh, note uh, the knowledge of the truth. I I've really grown to appreciate this uh, defining phrase as used by the Apostle Paul everywhere with the exception of uh, the writer of Hebrews, which we don't know who wrote Hebrews. But one argument for Paul might be that he does use this phrase as well. Uh, but the knowledge of the truth. In order to be saved, one must believe. But in order to believe, one must know what to believe. Makes sense, right? Yes. Uh, Paul impacts this in Romans 10 uh, when he says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So they have to know. Uh, content is essential when it comes to getting the gospel right. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or to be saved, you have to come to the knowledge of the truth and, of course, embrace it, believe it. Uh, so I say there, in order to be saved, people must first have the right uh, knowledge. Uh, they must know the right thing before they can properly believe it. And then the 12 points of emphasis here, which <laughs> we will move through these 12 points very rapidly. Uh, number one, Christ came. Uh, why Christ came into the world? Well, he came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. He came to be the Savior. Uh, and I enlarge on that. Page 38. Uh, the second point is under, uh, again, we're talking about the knowledge of the truth. Um, number two, the rock truth upon which the church is built. Um, Jesus said to the disciples, who do people say I am? One of the prophets, who do you say I am? Peter, under inspiration, basically said, you are the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God. And then John says, I wrote my whole gospel so you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Same thing Peter said. And Jesus said, it's this rock, uh, this rock truth that I will build my church on. Um, who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, this is fundamental truth, uh, the knowledge of the truth. 
Uh, we've talked across the page, uh, John, the gospel of belief. Uh, we've talked a lot about this, so I'm not going to go into this here. But uh, John has the word believe 90 times. We call it the gospel of belief. It's the one gospel, the one book in the Bible that says specifically written so we might believe. So we want to put a tremendous emphasis on what John says we must believe. And according to uh, Jesus uh, in John, uh, he's the Lamb of God and he's the Lord. The very first verse emphasizes uh, that he is God and builds on that. Okay, let's go to page 40. <clears throat> Number four there, John's consistent refutation of easy believism. Uh, there, we could develop this in all of John's writings, you know, his epistles, uh, the book of Revelation, the gospel of John. Uh, for example, in, uh, don't jump down to the first reference. We're only going to look at one here because of time. But in John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. So that's one category as described by Jesus here. Those who have done good. I thought this is the gospel of belief. Jesus says those who have done good are going to come forth in the resurrection of life. Well, what happened to belief? I don't think there's any contradiction here. The believers are those who do good, characteristically. That's why he says this. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Interesting, Jesus describes it this way. And yet, in the context of the gospel of belief. First uh, John, I, I, say, I see I can't keep my word here, but First John, the next reference there. Now, by this we know that we know him. How do we know it? Because we believe. Is that what he says? Well, yeah, but what kind of belief are we talking about? By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. If you don't have a faith that keeps his commandments, don't say, well, I'm, I'm, I know I got the right kind of faith. We know that we know him because we keep his commandments. He says, I know him. I know him. I know the Lord. I know the Lord. But does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, believe in his name. Uh, top of page 41. I believe in his name. His name is his person. have to believe in his person. Uh, that's the emphasis. And uh, we see this all the way through uh, the Gospel of John in particular. And then let's go down to number six. We boast only in the cross. So here's the, you know, the other emphasis as far as his work. Uh, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross. Uh, Page 42, uh, bottom of the page, death and resurrection. I love the emphasis on the death and resurrection. You don't have a full gospel presentation without death and resurrection. You say, well, the gospel ends when, when Christ says it's finished. That's, that's the full gospel. Not, not really. I mean, it's true. It's finished. He paid for our sin. But the rest of the story is he rose again which declared him to be the Son of God, according to Romans 1.4. So uh, death and resurrection, Savior, what he did on the cross, and Lord, what was demonstrated in the resurrection, go together. You can't separate that and say, well, we got Savior, but not Lord. No, we believe on him for who he is. We believe in his person. And Savior and Lord go together just as sure as death and resurrection. You can't you can't separate that gospel and say, well, the gospel, the full gospel is Christ just died for our sins. No, it also includes his resurrection, showing who he is as Lord. Okay, uh, come across the page to uh, number eight, uh, neutering the gospel. 
In recent years, an easy believism gospel has come to the fore in evangelicalism that has an aversion to the idea of lordship in regards to evangelism. They speak of accepting Christ as Savior, but never as Lord. And I know people like this, and even good people who, who never talk about accepting Christ as Lord. It's always just a Savior. I have a problem with that. Uh, note the middle of the page 44, right in the middle of the page, uh, right above the Zane Hodges quote. The free grace, redundant, I know, movement has been hostile to the Lordship, has been hostile to Lordship salvation no matter how it is defined. But this movement has really gone off the rails. This movement not only advocates a lordless gospel, but also came to advocate a crossless gospel. Uh, in seeking to reduce the gospel to a bare-bones minimum, uh, they not only did away with Christ's lordship in salvation, but they also did away with his cross. As a leader in this movement, the late Zane Hodges pushed this crossless gospel emphasis. Note the quote I have here. The simple truth is that Jesus can be believed uh, for salvation apart from any detailed knowledge of what he did to provide it. Well, I take issue with that. You have to know what he did, and you have to know who he is as well. So I have a really double issue with uh, Zane Hodges, who was a major uh, advocate for the, uh, the Lordless gospel. <clears throat> okay, page uh, 45, uh, the knowledge of the truth. Uh, again, big deal. I, I see four major uh, emphases in relationship to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, sin, <clears throat> when Paul begins his uh, presentation of, of uh, the gospel, the most systematic presentation of the gospel we have in the New Testament, he really, after the prologue, begins with the development of sin, the knowledge of sin. And that's where he goes in Romans 3.20, By the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of the truth begins with sin. And then uh, number 10 there, the knowledge of the truth, the person of Christ. Well, we've talked quite a bit about that. And, uh, of course, a key reference here is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's go to the uh, number 11, <clears throat> the knowledge of the truth, the finished work of Christ. And, uh, again, we've talked some about that. And then the knowledge of the truth, faith required. Uh, let's jump down to the bottom of page 48, uh, my definition of saving faith. Saving faith is from the heart, believing in Jesus Christ alone as my personal Savior who died for all my sins and as my personal Lord Master who is God Almighty as declared by His resurrection from the dead. So that's my definition of saving faith. And then uh, in a summary, uh, a summary of the, of the knowledge of the truth, we've talked about these four things that we must emphasize in terms of the knowledge of the truth. But I also want to add at the bottom there, under E, accountability for the knowledge of the truth, uh, where Hebrews 10 says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's that phrase, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Again, he's talking about a rejection of truth where it's been plainly put before someone. That's the emphasis in Hebrews 6 as well. Okay, let's go to page 50. How to believe. Uh, the whole issue of how to believe, really, if you were to boil it down, uh, is an issue of the heart. An issue of the heart. Uh, under number one there, saving faith personally embraces the Lord Jesus for who He is, for what He's done. We've mentioned that. And then number two, the intellect, emotions, and will are all involved in, in genuine saving faith. Uh, let's go to the next page, uh, page uh, 52. Uh, 
uh, way down at the bottom of the page, uh, can a Christian be carnal? Can a Christian be carnal? Uh, The word carnal means fleshy. Can a Christian be carnal? The answer is no and yes. Uh, Positionally, believers have the spirit, are spiritual and not carnal. However, in practice, believers can be carnal. Uh, The problem is that believers do not always live consistently with their position in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul addressed the church at Corinth as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. That's their position. He's addressing a what he goes on to call carnal church. But positionally, yeah, they are um, sanctified. They are saints. However, in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, Paul repeatedly labeled them as carnal. Their position was one of sanctified saint, but in practice they were behaving carnally. So it is certainly possible for a believer to be in that position. Uh, Top of page 53. Easy believism says you can be a believer without your faith ever really changing your life. Uh, It is a most perverse lie straight from the pit. Easy believism champions the idea of a permanent category of Christian carnality. Yes, Christians can behave carnally, but not without divine intervention. That's my point. God is not an irresponsible Heavenly Father who just sits idly by while His children live according to the flesh as a perpetual way of life. I mean, he disciplines all of his children to build holiness into their lives. That's what, that's what Hebrews 12 is emphasizing. So uh, that completely misses the message of the New Testament. It completely misses the reality of regeneration. It completely misses the greater message in the book of 1 Corinthians, which deals with Christian carnality, which, by the way, many of them had died because of how they were living uh, in their sin. And that's why I go on to address here. The carnal Christians at Corinth were not just going about their lives as normal. No, there was divine intervention. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul said that because of their sin, many are weak and sick among you. Many sleep. Because of their carnality, many were sick and dying. They didn't just continue on in an endless carnal mode without God intervening. Paul then went on to say, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So I think a mark of true, genuine Christianity is if you are in sin as a believer, God will deal with you. He will bring discipline in one form or another. Uh, Go down to the bottom there. Saving faith involves a heart. Next page, uh, page 54. Uh, Saving faith is an act of worship. And uh, skip the next couple paragraphs there. In an evangelistic context, Jesus told a Samaritan woman that God is looking for true worshipers and that they are those who worship in spirit and in truth. I believe saving faith is an act of worship. It's the first act of worship. Um, but I would characterize it in that way, and that true, true believers are true worshipers. I would correspond that to Philippians 3. Uh, saving faith involves the will. Let's go to the next page, uh, page 56, the middle of the page. The bookends of Romans, and again, Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the, in the New Testament. And uh, the book of Romans presents the necessity of the obedience of faith. And I emphasize this because obedience involves the will, right? You choose whether you're going to obey or disobey. I mean, right way back from the Garden of Eden, it's always uh, obedience is a choice, And we are saved by the obedience of faith. 
Some of my brethren seem to, you know, it's amazing how few commentators seem to pick up on this emphasis in the book of Romans, but it starts that way and it ends that way, and it's in the middle as well, for example, in 617. Uh, but uh, in Romans 1.5, Paul said, We have received the grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. I mean, that's his calling to present the gospel and, and call people to the obedience of faith. And then towards the end of the book, he explains that his gospel has been made known for obedience to the faith. Paul, in describing the conversion of the Christians in Rome, said, You obeyed from the heart. You responded. You obeyed. In contrast, God said to his people Israel, All day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In Romans 10.10, Paul says, With the heart one believes unto righteousness. I submit to you that involves an act of obedience. We're not saved by the obedience of works, but we are saved by the obedience of faith. Of course, all glory to God, he brings us to that point. Let's talk about the lordship conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, there are several standout conversions in the Bible. Uh, Several standout examples of saving faith. Uh, Abraham, I believe, is the premier example of saving faith in all the scriptures. Nebuchadnezzar is another big one. The God intended for him to be an example down through history. Uh, so we've got uh, Abraham, we've got Nebuchadnezzar, we've got the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, all great examples of saving faith. But let's talk about the lordship conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the whole issue with Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. It was a lordship issue, totally. Uh, page 57, uh, the third paragraph. Many years into his reign, Nebuchadnezzar was strutting around in his palace, glorying in himself and his supposed self-made accomplishments. You know, he's kind of like his own lord. You know, I'm the Lord of my, kim- my kingdom, and this is my empire, and, and I'm the greatest. Look what I've done. It's all me, 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 me. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all about himself. Immediately the judgment of God fell. The king lost his normal sanity for a period of seven years. Put him out to pasture. Went from the palace to the pasture. And during this time he ate grass like an animal, was eventually humbled. You know, that'll get you after a while. You get, you know, after about, I don't think it should take seven years, but uh, at the end of the time, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Wow, refocus, refocus. Instead of the grass, we're going to look up. And so he did, uh, which I take it reflects true conversion, which was then further reflected in his life, whereas previously all he could do was glory in himself and his own greatness. Now all he gloried in was the king of heaven and his sovereignty. Indeed, his testimony now was, quote, those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, God took him as he had the greatest position in the world. I mean, he's the kingdom of gold represented in in Daniel chapter 2. The purest form of monarchy, the authority that he had everywhere in his kingdom. And God took him in that position and put him down to where he says, you know, the God of heaven, he's in charge. It's not me. So uh, the point here is, uh, God intends for this to be a lesson, an enduring lesson for all time, a lesson for all the living. God intended what happened to Nebuchadnezzar to be a lesson in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets up over it the lowest of men. However, just a few short years later, his grandson named Belshazzar had a blasphemous feast called for the Jewish temple vessels to be desecrated. Uh, 
The handwriting was on the wall. The party was over. Why did God move so abruptly at this point? Well, Daniel pointed out that although Belshazzar knew all these things about Nebuchadnezzar, yet he did not humble his heart and glorify God. It's a lordship issue. And he died that very night. That was it. Grace period was over for him. The lesson for all the living is that the God of Israel is the one true sovereign God who calls us to humble ourselves and give him the glory for who he is. That was the issue. Uh, not a, just an Old Testament concept. Jump to the New Testament there. The obedience to the faith in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the church where I grew up, there was a large poster placed prominently on the front wall with John 3.16 on it. I would uh, look at that verse and in my rebellious heart say to myself, God can't send me to hell because I believe. <laughs> I mean, as if I think I'm in charge here. You can't send me to hell because I believe. Uh, I, I did that for years. Little did I know that there is a kind of faith that doesn't save. Years later, I was truly converted. One day I was reading through Romans 10 and I saw that it's with the heart one believes under righteousness. And uh, it was an aha moment for me. Next page. Earlier in life, I had an intellectual ascent, but there was no heart commitment, and consequently, my life remained unchanged. Saving faith involves a response of obedience from the heart. Uh, the gospel is the truth of the person and work of Christ that must be obeyed. The response demanded is the obedience of faith. A saving faith involves knowledge and obedient submission. Okay, let's talk about uh, the nature of saving faith just a, a little bit from... Have you ever thought about uh, Moses and Aaron? And uh, you know the situation. Talk to the rock and Moses struck the rock. You know the story, right? And then the top of page 59, since we got three minutes left, we're going to cut to the chase here, okay? Uh, Numbers 20, verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. What? You did not believe me. Well, what is that? Is this a matter of belief? That's what God says. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So skip that next paragraph. In what sense did they not believe God? I mean, these are believers, right? They're clearly both believers, both Moses and Aaron. Uh, but here God says you did not believe me. The, the Hebrew word for believe here is aman. Same word as in Genesis 15, 6, which is the root word for amen, right? When you believe, you amen what God is saying. It affirms what God says. It expresses strong confirmation of what God has said. It amens what God says. It agrees with God. In this case, the actions of Moses did not amen what God said, but rather contradicted it as he did his own thing. This is a form of unbelief. Numbers 27, 14 refers to this incident as rebellion. It was a form of unbelief that involved rebellion and which showed a lack of reverence for God. This text speaks to the nature of God-honoring faith. It's not merely knowing about God, but rather submits to the truth of God's lordship authority. This is a matter of the will. In this case, Moses and Aaron did not believe in the sense that they did not recognize God's lordship authority 
and instead defiantly acted contrary to God's command. Thus we see God honoring faith uh, with, and, uh, with the will, submits to God, and yields to his lordship authority. This is the right kind of faith. Okay, well, we must stop there because we are right about that time. So we'll pick it up uh, tomorrow on page uh, 60. We're going to start there with uh, saving faith involves repentance. I'm going to develop that a little bit. And uh, we'll get into some other uh, matters as well. Hope you can come back tomorrow, right? Yeah, I hope so. At least, yeah, I hope so. Lord, again, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you for everything we see in the scriptures about the nature of a true saving faith and the nature of faith generally. Uh, what is faith? And how is it described in the Bible? Uh, Lord, uh, help us to grow as we consider these matters. All comes back to who you are and uh, reverencing you for who you are, taking you at your word, amening you uh, for who you are and what you say. And uh, so, Lord, again, we thank you for the truth of the Scriptures. And, uh, Lord, we thank you for your grace that brings us uh, to the knowledge of the truth. And then, Lord, working in our hearts to where we believe it, we accept it, and uh, we obey it. As, as the Word of God says. So, Lord, again, we thank you for uh, this time. May it bear fruit in our lives as we continue to study. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.